Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? ground rules and things for how the trip is going to go. So, Mm -hmm. and, and I, it's interesting, this dog, having this dog has really opened my eyes to how much moms do. I mean, I have a dog. I don't have a child. I just have a dog, but like understanding that you have to plan for things and you cannot, uh, you have to be both moms apparently have to be both flexible and planners and be able are expected to sort of be pivoting at any moment, but also try to lay groundwork for, for young people. I, I don't know how people do it. I, I don't know. Dude. Well, uh, this weekend uh, there was a conversation about, you know, why mom isn't more fun. And I want to be like, you want to know something while I'm sitting here, quote unquote, having fun for you at an activity that I planned and paid for and scheduled and organized and brought the stuff to while we're here. I now need to be thinking about the problems that are going to arise while we're here, how long it's going to get to take home, you know, how long it's going to take to get home, what I'm going to make for dinner when I get home, what time, you know, what time their dad is going to like, it's just, I'm always thinking of a lot of things at the same time. I cannot. So I, I think that most people, like I'm not advocating to have kids for people that don't, but have something in your life that is unpredictable, needs rules, causes you to be extremely thinking on your toes, but also having to be stable for it. Oh my God. I, Mm -hmm. I am just like, I have so much respect for my friends now that have children and I just know one iota of what that means. But like in terms of even having to do anything for anybody else, because like for my husband, I can be like, you know what? No, I'm not doing, you know, but if if I don't deal with this dog and she's a great dog and she does all great things, she still poops and pees. And I mean, I have never since I have been an adult. So like taking care of my parents as they passed away, like that was a big job. But that, that sort of felt like it had an ending. I mean, you know, and this will have an ending too, but that felt really, you know, finite in terms of my job. This feels like an ongoing project. And to be honest, I haven't had, uh, something that has required my intense attention in my whole adult adulthood. Like that kind of a project where if the, if you don't like my job, one thing and stuff like that, but like, uh, I have never felt responsible in this way. And I think that it is a very sort of, um, it's a huge challenge and it's also, um, it's challenge and lovely and amazing, but it's, 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 uh, I think it's important to, t- to look outside of ourselves and to have a project that has nothing, literally nothing to do with my wants and needs, like nothing. Yeah. Or I would say it, it has nothing to do with your wants and needs in the sense that the, the thing that you're taking care of, their wants and needs don't 
at the beginning anyway, change because of your wants and needs, but you're having to constantly manage your own wants and needs in the service of the wants and needs of, of the other person. And, and like child rearing, raising a dog to be a dog that's going to be easy to live with is similar to raising a human that's going to be easy to live with, which means a lot of times tolerating, I think I was talking to you about this when I was there, tolerating the distress of, for example, the dog is crying because she doesn't want to be in the crate, but you're doing that for truly for her own good, even though it's breaking your heart, it's breaking her heart in the moment that you're doing that is so true. And then it translates to my own shit of my own inner child stuff of, okay, so my inner child wants to eat McDonald's, right? Like all the time. Uh, That's what she thinks she wants, whatever. That's what she wants. Uh, I, that is not okay if I want to live a long life and have a heart that keeps going. So it's, it's literally, it's helping me to be like, okay, I really want to eat garbage food. Like I just do. That's the truth of what a part of me wants. But in the long run, do I want to be around to enjoy people, success of writing? Yes, I do. I, if you ask me, yes, I don't. If someone said, okay, so it's like a real, and I didn't learn how to negotiate that as a child. I, I never learned that skill and I don't know who does, but I'm learning now to say, oh, that thing you do for the dog of like delay. It's not even delayed gratification. It's like long game health, long game tolerance, you know, people wanting to be around this dog. You know, I got to do the same for me. Like I, I, I never realized how much work it is to negotiate with myself when I want to do things that are not helpful. Yeah. And also what I'm hearing you talk about is in the abstract is why people are so pained in their childhoods is because mostly if their parents weren't able to do this important and difficult work and parents of our parents' generation mostly weren't because it was like post-war, get the food on the table, children should be seen and not heard kind of thing. So chances are they didn't get to do all of this exploratory (laughs) inner work so that they really couldn't provide their kids with the things that they needed. So this is why everybody walks around in pain. And this is why 99% of, you know, content out there, especially for women of my, of our age is about drinking wine and, uh, or, you know, otherwise getting stoned to forget that you have all this pain. (laughs) I have a question in terms of mom culture, you know, there's a, uh, someone was talking to me. She's she's a mom that does not drink. She's a sober mom. But she said that like there's so much stuff around moms and drink like moms drinking. It's disgusting. It's truly disgusting. When I maybe when my oldest child was a baby, maybe I thought that was kind of funny or cute. But I mean, it, it grilled quickly. First of all, it's just another way in which it's like making people one dimensional and you know what I mean? Like, uh, and, and, and it's a terrible thing to do as a parent to cope. I mean, you know, you're teaching, you want to teach your kid to get off the bottle, but you can't get off the bottle. It's yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole Michigas as they say. Yeah. So, so anyway, but Doris is like just so adorable. She's the most beautiful dog in the world. She's a good dog. 
And I'm happy for you that you're having this experience. Thank you. It, I think it's cool. I think it's cool. And I also think it's necessary um, for, it's like, I never, never thought it would be sort of the Buddhist kind of spiritual situation of like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Like noticing, like she's really bitey and she's really this right now. And she's really, and, and tolerance for, um, for uncomfortable, but also tolerance for messiness in general, mm-hmm. whether it's emotional or, and I think that I, I can be, I don't allow myself to get emotionally messy a lot of the times. Um, acceptable emotions like in my marriage are anger, you know, like my mom was really good at anger. Like that was her jam. And, but everything else was really not tolerated. So it's like, Oh, right, right. When you, when I don't tolerate messy behavior in people that I love, it can be emotionally abusive. You know, when you're, when you're so intolerant, it's like, no, no, you're not allowed to have that emotion. No, 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 no. You have to do this. Well, well, that seems not right. So I'm seeing it. I'm seeing that in myself. And I'm also, it's also giving me compassion for my mom, but also compassion for people who just like, are ill-equipped to handle other people's emotional needs. Yeah. So I am listening to the audiobook of a very old book called Bird by Bird. I love that bird. I mean that book. Okay. That book. Yes. Uh, Narrated by Susan Bennett, (laughs) whose whose episode is airing today. Yes. Narrated by Susan Bennett, so it's really kind of fun to be reading this great book and and hearing a, f- a familiar voice reading it. But she has a whole section in there about messes, and she says, you know, and she's she's both talking about literal and metaphorical messes and how messes are truly what art comes out of. And so you're if you can't tolerate a mess, then it's not that maybe that it's maybe not that you can't get to the heart of the thing, but it's just a lot harder. Whereas if you can tolerate the difficulty of the mess of the moment, you know, and allow it to structure into the thing you need it to be. Cause she's, she talks a lot about how writing is so much about writing the thing that it's not about until you can write the thing that it is about, which I really, really relate to everything. I So right now I am writing a blog post called worst period, summer period ever period. And it's about, this is, I mean, I'm sure at some point it'll get worse, but so far this has been my worst summer ever. And I keep, starting a different thing because I'm really just trying to figure out what it's about. I, all I feel this connection to is the central idea and I just have to figure out a way. And so I've, so I've spent a lot of time writing a bunch of things that it's not about. And I do this thing that I think is probably not helpful, which is that when I decide it's not about that, I put that on a different document thinking that I'm going to write about that one day. Maybe I will, but you know, anyway, so I have so many, you know, unfinished short, treatises on how I feel about certain things. Is the central idea that you just talked about, is the central idea uh, worst summer ever period or is there a different central idea? No, the central idea is that, um, well, I guess you could say I haven't landed on it, but what what I'm trying to write about is 
keeping the thread of good times, bad times, like being able to say, yeah, this is what you would call a bad time. That doesn't mean this is your life now or all times are, you know. but it's also because I didn't in so many ways actually ever deal with the really bad times that I had growing up. And like, that's all coming home to roost right now, both through the processing loss of my sister and through processing being a parent. I'm just I I ran away from that truly as long as I possibly could. Yes. And now the message is very clear. Like you just can't, it's time. You can't, Whoa. you can't keep avoiding it. So yeah. That is like oh. serious business. But the good news is that the, that it, that high, as hard as it is, it's like, I just know from an outside point of view, looking at, at what your life and the summer and stuff is that, the shit can only get better. Like it, 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 it look, we're going to have worse times too, but I mean, in, in the long con of it all, this is like the thing that is demanding your attention emotionally. And that is the work to do. And you're doing it. The good news is you're doing it. The good news is you're not drinking excessively or snorting, yeah. snorting glue that I know of. You know what I mean? <laughs> Hey, let me run this by you. And then the other thing I wanted to run by you is, um, so I, I, through college and like for four years after, I really didn't consume very much of media. Um, We were really busy in theater school. I mean, I maybe went to the movie sometimes. Um. We didn't have a TV, and then I didn't have a TV after college for a long time. So I missed all these big swaths of popular culture, one of which was The Matrix. Mm. And I watched it for the first time the other day. Now, uh, I expected it to feel dated. And actually, it doesn't feel that dated. It's, it's all pretty relevant. And I was having this experience of going wow, this is a really well-made movie. And that's about as yeah. far as it went. I didn't feel anything about it at all. I yep. truly felt nothing. Yep. I didn't care about any of the characters. I didn't hate any of the characters, but I certainly didn't care what happened to any of them. And it was kind of like, um, I, it was kind of like so much of what is so embraced in in content. And especially now, now I, I understand that I am not uh, well-versed enough in what I'll call like all the big intellectual property um, movies and stuff that are out there. And I did feel very moved by Wonder Woman and I did feel very moved by Black Panther. Um, but other than that, I what is it? And why does it feel so flat to me? Because you're into, I think, um, you're really into characters and relationships and storytelling from that point of view. And literally, for me, The Matrix has no relationship. Like, the relationships are so not developed. They're underdeveloped. I think on purpose, it's about the way the, the world looks. It's so heavily world 
leaning and so the opposite of everything looking from the outside that makes you tick and makes you a your kind of storyteller that it it's just the wrong world it's like uh it it I'm the same way like I think I like action movies but I don't it's not something they never they never move me unless there's like no like they just don't I like them and I can under, it's like you can appreciate the movie making magic that is the matrix but the relationships aren't the stuff of um like you know a character dra- driven drama it's not yeah, and I said to my son who I was watching it with, you know, these characters are so one-dimensional. Like, I don't know anything about this right. Neo guy. And he looked at me, he goes, what do you mean you don't know anything about him? He's he uh, uh, he's d- devoted his life, he has, lives two lives. His one life is that he's hacking all over the internet. And then he said something, and I'm like, yeah, well, you have it. <laughs> That doesn't. I'm sorry, but that doesn't tell me. And I and that's what it is. I don't know anything about his parents. I don't know anything about his siblings. I don't know anything about his love life. Like it's. And I think for me, those kind of stories. Right for me, what happens to me when I watch those kind of stories, and I don't know if it's like this for you, it's that because I crave connection, right? So I'm craving for human connection and to watch stories of connection or misconnection. The, the whole thing is like a disconnect. Literally, that phone disconnects. They don't. It's 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 a cold movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is cold. And then last night, the kids wanted to go see a movie, so we went to see Space Jam. Oh, which the third one? I didn't. Second one. I don't know. A second one. I didn't. I don't think I saw the original. And I had a similar experience. Like, oh wow, they worked so hard on this movie, and and part of it is that um, it it purposefully cheekily highlights all of Warner Brothers' intellectual property. So, the, so the main character is traveling through. It's not called the multiverse; it's called the server verse, the the Warner Brothers server verse, and it's passing. And and one thing that's fun about it is like, oh wow, all of these properties are owned by the same Game of Thrones and Wizard of Oz and Casablanca. It's all and Warner Brothers, Lo- Looney Tunes, and um, uh, it the you know the clown. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like hundreds. And that was the other thing, like, okay, so these companies are so happy because they have basically an endless supply of content to pull from, but it's all already imagined content. And I kind of feel like, okay, so there's all this push about representation and stuff like that in Hollywood, but maybe the way that they're getting out of it now is that they just don't they don't ha- they don't have to tell any new stories right, right. and I, so yeah. what's going to happen there well i think i i really think we're going to swing back to the small character driven a relationship 
stories. I really do. I, I don't, it's like the housing market. It's like, how far can you go before the thing just, it just bursts? I mean, and, and capitalism, it basically comes, this basically could be a podcast about the downfall of capitalism also, because we always end up, but it's true. It's like, how much, con, con, how much content can we just churn out, churn out, churn out until, and, until the relationships don't matter anymore, until it's just like this crazy machine. And then it, it'll, it'll eat itself, I think. And then we'll get, yeah. get back to like drawing, you know, in the dirt with sticks. I mean, like literally. Totally. And maybe yeah, we need that. To. Maybe we do. Maybe we do. Because the other thing I read, the, I started this Anne Lamott book because I finished the Mike Nichols oh, um, yeah. biography, which is very long, but very good. Uh, good in the sense that it re- he that guy had as many failures as he did successes. You know, he did The Graduate, but then he did like truly a string of movies that I've never heard of that were apparently terrible. And he, through the end of his life, he kept challenging himself. He would he would have a big success in the, in the film and then he would go direct something on Broadway. And half the time it failed. Like he did Waiting for Godot with Robin Williams and um Steve Martin and Bill Irwin. What? And I forget who the fourth person was. And it bombed. like kind of bombed. Yeah. Like, wow, that's crazy. That seems unimaginable to me. So it was very heartening, you know, that at, through the end of his career, he had things that just really weren't well received. And that's important to tell that story because we are in a very perfection obsessed society that does make you feel like if it's not going to be perfect, don't do it. Oh, this is so true. And I just did a, a, um, a pitching. Okay. So I'm in this like workshop thing and we did a, for August and we did a pitching round table. It was our first verbal pitching to each other in this class. And a woman who I adore in the class, her first time pitching, and we all, none of us have pitched verbally this, our scripts before. So this was like a shit show, like for all of us. And we all knew it and everyone was really scared, but I just said, okay, okay, you're just going to go. And also being the person I am, I'm like, I'm going to like, there is a part of me that's like, I'm going to be of service so that I can fail so that I can, other people can see. And look, it wasn't a failure because we were all just practicing. But this woman, speaking of perfectionism, this woman was pitching her screenplay and um, her feature and broke down into tears because I think it is so ingrained. I mean, I don't want to know for me on the outside looking, I don't want to pretend to know what really went down. But for me on the outside, I was like, oh, I can imagine you're pitching this thing that you believe in. Like she loves her story. It's a very personal story. She's never pitched it to a group of people, um, you know, and she's practicing and the emotion that came up was so big and she could not finish her pitch or did not want to finish her pitch. And I was chatting like a maniac to her, you know, like this is you like, cause she was like, I can't keep it together. I cannot. And I was like, great. Like this is, you're allowed to be real and vulnerable. And I'm telling you right now, if this happened, I have no idea if this is true, but I think it is in a executive session. I bet you they'd buy your fucking script. Like I just, I, I, the thing that we think is not, going to make us perfect is the thing that is perfectly us and the thing that people want i now look you can't to an extent like you can't get on there and start screaming and talking about i mean you could but right but but 
hers was genuine and authentic. And she, and I, she said she like, she wanted, it wasn't going to be good enough. And so she, she really wanted the story to be told. Anyway, it was this perfectionism thing. It, it doesn't exist. It is a lie that we tell ourselves. I don't know why. What are we doing? Yeah. Like, why are we I, doing what, this? Truly, why are we doing this? It doesn't help anybody. It never has. And no matter how many times everybody learns this lesson, we're still going right back to, I, I, I honestly, I feel I, I should be like that memento guy and get all these things tattooed all over like, dare to fail and don't forget to breathe. <laughs> it's okay if it's, you know, some, you know, it's okay if today is not whatever the day you thought it was going to be, because the, these are all things that when I'm not in my emotional mind, I remember, but once I really need them and I'm in my emotional mind, I don't, you know, yeah. I really, we I revert, I revert to what, um, you know, that guy Eckhart Tolle that everyone, the power of now, but anyway, he calls it the pain body. And when I'm in my pain body, Oh, forget it. Forget it. I don't breathe. I don't, I, I can't function. I'm a child mixed with a, like a primal beast and it doesn't work. Like, and I, that was my problem with acting. It's like, I, I, my fear, my stage fright about that is that I will be humiliated, cause trouble. It won't be perfect. It will be, but not only will not be perfect, it won't be accepted. What my, what I, what I, my work I do and I'll be, um, I'll have let people down and I'll, I'll be like nothing, you know, it goes there. So like, and I'm like, that is that no, that is not a way to live. But that's the truth of my situation of of what happens when I'm in my that pain body and I really go for it emotionally. A good thing to do, and I'm I'm sort of saying this for everybody's benefit because I'm sure you do this, um, is this something I would work a lot on with my clients whenever they'd be catastrophizing. Um, is I would talk it all the way through and then what, and then what, and then what, and even if they got to, well, oftentimes they would get to, and then I'll die. And then I'd be like, but the logic doesn't hold there. Cause you're just talking about being embarrassed or you're just talking about being sad or you're just like, but uh, even then it's like, okay. And then you'll die. Right. And then what? Right. So, so right. Exactly. So what, it's such a good thing to do. And I, and I get to like, I will be unlovable and that's worse than death. But if I can look at, okay, what is the unlovability, you know, uh, factor and why does that matter so much? Then, then, then I'm really dealing with the real stuff. You know, it's like, I, I'm a failure, blah, 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 which is worse than death, you know, in some ways for emotionally, it feels worse. Um, and cause yeah. So it's, it's, it's going through the whole thing and, and really, but there are some people and I don't know how they do it. They can just fake it. Right. They fake it. They're like, yeah, I have some fear, but I just show up and I, I, I don't know these people. I don't know who they are, but God bless them. We're like, yeah, well, maybe it's, maybe it's white dudes in their fifties. I don't know, but they're like, oh, I'll give it a shot. Why not? <laughs> and let's just You know who those people are. And it's honestly, it's one of my favorite types of people. I have several good friends like okay. this. The thick skin narcissist. Oh, you I love got this. to love a thick skin yeah. narcissist. There's nothing worse than a thin skin narcissist, but a 
fix Skin Narcissist is Larry David. It's funny. It's, it's, it's refreshing because I am, I spend all of my time in all of my insecurities and to, to be with somebody, it's not that they don't have any insecurities, but it's just not top of mind. Right. And you're not obsessive about it. They're obsessive about other things. Like I have a friend and we, we lost touch and he's in New York and I've known him since I was 18 and he's great. And he's this consummate New Yorker, like Larry David type. All right. The guy, what I would describe, I'd call him in my late 20s, early 30s and talk about my, um, my love life and how devastated I was and, and how, like for an hour and his response would be, well, you know, maybe you should just like buy the, buy the guy a present and like, and also, uh, yes, they always have the simplest answers, right? Like maybe buy him. He, you, you said he like has terrible lighting in his house. Just get him a lamp. And I'd be like, oh my god, John, what are you talking yes. about? So, and oh, yeah, and it was so straightforward, and he he just had the most sort of simple answers for things, and I was like, what are you talking? But guess what? I did buy the guy a lamp. <laughs> It didn't work, but I mean, it didn't make it was something to, it was something to try. It was a perfectly fine thing to try. Oh, that's hilarious. With practical narcissistic sort of like advice. And he also said that that he, this is also someone who after nine 11, I, he lived in New York and I couldn't reach him and I couldn't reach him and I couldn't reach him. And I thought for sure he was dead. I finally, and the phone lines were down and I finally reached him and I'm like, how are you? He's like, I'm terrible. And I was like, oh my God. And literally two days after 9-11, he goes, someone t- uh, made a screenplay with my same idea. <laughs> I said, what are you talking? What? I hung up. I hung up the phone. I said, okay. And I clicked. I- that was his terrible at two days after 9-11. <laughs> oh, that's priceless. Oh, that is so priceless. He's like, can you believe it? He's like, okay, I'm going to hang up now. You're okay. That's a thick skin narcissist right there. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Mia McCullough. Mia went to Northwestern and she's a playwright and a filmmaker and a web series creator and uh, a comedian. And she's not afraid to tell it like it is and speak her mind. And she was lovely to have on the podcast. So please enjoy our conversation with Mia McCullough. Yeah, I Okay. I, I grew up in. Um... I was born in Manhattan, but I grew up in the suburbs of New York. So. Oh, okay. In Westchester? Yeah, but in non-fancy Westchester. We'll get into that because it's sort of part of my Northwestern Part of your story. Okay. Oh, good, yeah. good, good. Okay. Mia McCullough, congratulations. You survived theater school. I did. As a student and as a teacher. So let's get <laughs> into it. How yes. you, before, before we started recording, Mia told us that... Uh, going to teach at Northwestern was like returning to an abusive boyfriend. So you've got to tell us what you mean. Yeah. I mean, Northwestern is just, it's a very, uh, it's like very cold, not nurturing place, just the institution itself. And, um, and it doesn't care about its faculty and it doesn't care about its students. And I think because the faculty suffers from neglect they also then in turn neglect their students to a degree. You know, I also think that 
um, higher education in general is like uh, universities are like a repository for the mentally ill. And so you have mm-hmm. a lot of um, people who don't cope well in the real world who are then teaching um, college students. And then, you know, the, the whole culture of um, the acting scene at Northwestern was very like, let's tear everybody down to build them up. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is incredibly damaging to do to like 18, 19 year olds. So there was a lot, I mean, you know, and then when I went back to teach there, I was like, well, I'm going to be the teacher that I didn't get to have, or, you know, that I had, but not in the theater department. And yeah. And so, you know, like a, a lot of my students sort of like, came to me like, you know, fireflies to a light or something. They were just like, Oh my God, you care about us. You have compassion. Um, although I do feel like the culture of the theater department is much better now than it was when I was there. Um, but when I first started, I, I actually only taught in the theater department for one quarter. And then um, I got, I started teaching in the creative writing for the media program, which is housed under the film department. It's it's for all of School of Calm, but like any like theater people can apply and whatnot. It actually doesn't exist anymore, so I don't know why I'm talking about it. Like it's a thing, but um, <laughs> it was I, it was a program that I was in. It, I think if I had not gotten into that writing program, I would never have stayed at Northwestern because I found the atmosphere so toxic and abusive. And. You know, I've never heard it said the quite that way, which is amazing, that it's a repository for the mentally ill. And I, I've, and, and, and I, uh, it's very, that's very specific, but I also think that it explains a lot of our teachers' behavior. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I just, I think that people, um, gravitate towards the university setting when they cannot cope with real life. And I, I do feel like, I feel like like with DePaul and Columbia, there were a lot more working artists on faculty. Um, I know Jen's sort of shaking her head, like maybe not, but Columbia um, for sure. Columbia for sure. Columbia for sure. Right. For sure. Um, but like Northwestern, I mean, it was pretty actively discouraged. I feel like around, among the acting staff, like I know an acting teacher who was there when I was teaching who applied for tenure and they're like, yeah, you kind of work too much. What is that's insane? Um, and his students freaking loved him, and it was really devastating for them when he left. So, you know, there is a culture of like, no, we don't actually want you to succeed in your art form. We just want you to come here and teach it. Mm-hmm. And then there also feel like I also felt like my teachers didn't want me to succeed. Oh, what a terrible thing! Yeah, like there was just a general like, well, we're going to give you we're going to teach you how to be an artist and we're going to teach you, but we're not going to give you any practical skills. There's going to be no classes on auditioning. And they didn't even, you weren't even allowed to take acting freshman year. That's not a thing at Northwestern, I think Mm. still. And I think it's a money thing, honestly, like they say, Oh no, it's, you know, you need to prepare and you're going to take all these other base classes and then you'll get into acting in your sophomore year. But I think it's just because they would have had to hire more acting teachers to cover all the students. Oh, I see. Because so many people would have wanted to do it. it yeah. Ha- so it's not a conservatory. It's, it's not. It's it's just you take it as a major. <clears throat> you take acting yes. as a major, but you get a BFA. No, it's not a BFA. 
Okay. Um, when I, my, um, my degree is actually a bachelor of science in speech. Hmm. Okay. Oh, that okay. is, that is the degree that is that for all the theater majors, not just me. Um, and, and the thing about Northwestern that I actually appreciated was that, you know, they didn't funnel you into one thing. They wanted you to have experience with directing and designing. And so, and they made you do stage crew, which is also like a free labor thing, but, you know, and, you know, set construction and all this stuff, but it was really good to get that broad look at what everything was, because I think, you know, I certainly had a real appreciation for what everybody has to do to prep for a show and to work backstage for a show. Um, and so like the, the people who came out, like there, there wasn't necessarily this diva E looking down on stagehands kind of thing coming out of Northwestern. Which I appreciate, which I, I, and I also, I wonder about the not uh, uh, money making scam aside. I wonder about the not acting for if I had not acted, because what happened was, I don't know if you felt this beans, but uh, acting first year, taking acting classes, there was a lot of sussing out of like, who's prettier than I am. Who's the greatest, who can really make the teacher laugh with their improv. So I wonder if I, I don't know. I just, it's so interesting how they do these programs i'm fascinated yeah. but it sounds like it wasn't so well, helpful to not act for you in the i first mean year. it honestly wouldn't have been helpful in that program anyway because i don't feel like they ever were trying to teach me to act um <laughs> you know i mean I, honestly i mean my my acting teacher was totally just trying to like emotionally destroy me so she could build me back up and um because i happen to live with uh, a mom who has borderline personality disorder, I had walls already. And I was like, I don't know what you're trying to do, lady, but you don't get to come in here and mess around. And so she would be like, well, I, I just don't know how to teach you. And it's like, yeah, because I won't let you fucking mess me up, lady. I mean, and she still did to a certain extent. extent. But the thing, the, you know, Northwestern is an incredibly privileged school and was even more so back in the late eighties, early nineties, when I was there and uh, the atmosphere of, well, all the kids who came to Northwestern, many of them came from very wealthy communities that had acting programs. Like you could take acting in high school, which was not something, you know, as I was, I was saying to Gina before we started, I grew up in Westchester County in New York, which there is like this assumption of money, um, because much of the county is very wealthy, but I grew up in this very blue collar, like Irish Italian neighborhood where people were like owned gas stations and were cops and firemen and things like that. And there was no acting program at our high school. I mean, a lot of the kids were first generation and their parents were just glad to have them graduate from high school. There wasn't a demand for arts. There was a demand for sports. And so I got to college and I was like, oh my God, these people have had acting classes already. And I really haven't. And so all of a sudden I realized, like, I thought I was going to show up and we were all going to be on the same footing. And I got there and I was already behind and I couldn't take acting class my freshman year. Oh, so you were behind, but you felt behind. Now, do you have to audition to get into mm -mm. Northwestern? You do not have to audition to get into Northwestern. 
Which, you know, I have to say, recently I looked at uh, somebody had posted something saying that their the school that they went to was ranked high in the whatever ranking Mm -hmm. that they do. And so I, of course, went and looked and ours ours was not on the list and uh, but northwestern was and yeah and uh so p- it must be a combination of just this well i was gonna say student satisfaction but maybe that's not very high there i wonder what the, i wonder what the criteria are i mean i i think some of it's like prestige and i i mean some students were satisfied i think you know it's one of those things where I I want to say there was probably about a hundred theater students per year in each class and more of them were interested in acting than not. And three quarters of them were probably women, at least two thirds. And I mean, we all know how theater is written and it's written mostly for men. So there were not, I mean, there are all these women and no roles for them, you know, there, so there were, you know, five or six women who got cast in everything. And then there were a lot of women like myself who never got cast in a single production their entire time. Oh, literally you never got literally. I, yeah. When you were like, Oh, send us pictures. I'm like, I have no pictures. Like I was off playing cards with my friends. Cause I was like, I mean, I was, I don't want to say I was ostracized, but I was very like not part of the group. You know, I mean, also just culturally, you know, you hang out with people. I saw this better as a teacher than I did when I was a student, but you hang out with people that you can afford to hang out with. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, so so your friends divide very much on socioeconomic lines. And, you know, like I'm not going to go out to the fancy restaurants with the theater kids who have lots of money. So I just hung out with like nice people I met in my dorm who I'm still friends with and I love and are probably the best part of Northwestern, but they're not part of my theater degree, you know? Yeah. But if you couldn't take high school, if you couldn't take drama in high school, then how did you know you wanted to be an actor? Well, I mean, we had our school plays. I started out as a singer. um, And so I, and I actually was in my first play when I was 10 years old. Um, What was it? it? What was it? Cinderella. The Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella. The high school was doing it and they needed like three or four little kids to be in it. And my music teacher sort of said, you should audition for this because I had one of the better singing voices and I got cast and it was like heaven. Like, first of all, I was like oddly mature as a little kid. And so I did better with high school students than I did among my own people. And so that was nice. And everybody was warm and the girls were all so sweet to me and you know, like I met my first gay person. It was like the whole world just kind of opened up for me. And I was like, these are my people, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, and then I did um, summer theater and I went to music camp when I was in middle school. I really studied singing more and went to like this fancy music camp in upstate New York that um, we did that. And my high school had a good music program. Like we had this really good acapella singing well it wasn't an acapella singing group but it was like a select choir of just like nine of us and uh I don't I did not realize how good we were until afterwards like I went to go sing at a choir at at Northwestern and I was like this shit I'm not doing you know it was for non-majors you know what I mean but I was like no I'm not wasting my time with this but yeah so I and then I started doing plays in high school and middle school and you know I just I loved it 
It's funny how you say um, that that's where you met your first gay person and that's where you found your people. It's almost like, cause I grew up in a, not poor necessarily, but we'll say socioeconomically diverse area. And in my high school and middle school, Drama was how you could be introduced to liberalism because otherwise you were going to be pretty conservative from yeah. the community that we came from. And and when I think back, with the exception of, you know, actually Jessica Chastain, nobody in my high school went on, the, you know, people who, like me who were like so into drama went, went on to, I mean, they never, <laughs> they never did anything related. It was really just a place where they could feel like they found their people. It's such an important yeah, it serves an important function in that way. So you got there, you couldn't do acting, but did you do other theater stuff your first year? Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I a, a woman that I had met during uh, the perspective weekend that I came to before I had committed. She was stage managing this main stage show and was looking for an ASM, and I was like, okay, I'll do it. And um, the guy who was directing the show, speaking of repository for the mentally ill, he was our most mentally ill staff member in that like he talked to himself regularly. He had an imaginary friend named John um, and who you would see him talking to when his office door was open. He was in there. Oh, um, wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. No, no. And then um, he was he directed Desire Under the Elms. And the head of the department was in the show, I think, basically to make sure that nothing went totally awry and to keep an eye <laughs> oh on things. God. And um, yeah, um, Dr. Coakley referred to me as the downstairs maid. That was my nickname as the um, ASM. Oh, and, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and, um, and Dr. Coakley was also known for, he was gay, and he was uh, would prey upon the, the male students, although not successfully, because at this point, he's really old and gross, and no one's going for that. But um, he had cast this guy in Desire Under the Elms, who he had decided was very hot. And then that guy decided I was very hot. And then my other nickname became, became Little Miss Hot Pants. Um, <laughs> what, what, what a choice you had there. <laughs> I, know, I was like, uh, the first time I was like, well, I could, I was behind the curtain. I was backstage and I was like, all, all of a sudden I hear him saying, where is she? Where is that Little Miss Hot Pants? And I was like, ready to go kill him. And one of the set designers just like grabbed me and he's like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> You're so, like, I'm little yeah. Miss Downstairs Maid, please. Yeah, no, yeah, that's a better nickname. Yeah, so it was, I mean, it was a fascinating um, process, but uh, I really sort of was like, I don't know if I want to participate in this anymore. And then, um, and I wasn't cool enough. I wasn't in the right crowd for the, the student productions. Do you feel like your experience with your mom and her mental illness and her personality disorder really like, because when I hear you say um, uh, the, that you were ready to kill him because he called you little Miss Hot Pants, my 19 year old self would have died to been called that. Yeah. Um, I, and I'm not saying that's correct. Yeah. What I'm saying is how did you know that that was wrong? Oh yeah. You know, I knew it was all wrong. I, it was interesting. Part of it maybe was that I was almost minoring in psychology. So I was taking all these other classes, but um, 
I had a pretty good a pretty good sense of boundaries. I would call also my high school experience, which was Gina, like you were saying. I mean, very conservative. Like even the theater people are still conservative for the most part. Um, and I, I I was bullied a ton, and so I want to say like probably my sophomore year of high school, I was like, "Fuck it, I'm just going to be mean now," and and people will at least leave me alone. And so, you know, I tried to be more open coming to college, like, okay, not everybody here is going to be an asshole, like high school, not that everybody, but majority. Um, and, you know, so then I, I think that was part of it. And, and it was funny. I recently reconnected with one of my classmates, a guy who was in my acting class. And he's like, I always just felt like you totally didn't get sucked into the bullshit and, and knew what was going on and just were above it all. And I, which was an interesting perspective. Cause I feel, I think I felt more ostracized and outside of it. And therefore I'm like, fuck you people. Um, That's so common, by the way, we have heard that so many times, you know, people who were perceived as cool cats and sort of above it all, you know, will tell us they were just a mess of insecurity inside. And, it, and, it, and you know, it was all just defense, which I, I, at this point, it's, it shouldn't be surprising, but it's still, it, it's still surprise. It still surprises us when we talk to somebody who we haven't talked to since we went to theater school, and they're petrified mm -hmm. to do this interview or to, oh, you know, yeah. to just revisit that whole time in their lives, because you know, for many people, it was extremely traumatizing. So yeah. you did get to take acting classes, but then they, it sounds like they didn't coordinate the be in an acting class and then have be in a production. There was. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you could just languish in acting classes and get um, emotionally abused by your acting teachers um, was was more the thing. And and there was like this hierarchy of of acting teachers. And there was this one guy um Bud Beyer, who everybody was like, he's the best one. But oh, by the way, he also preys on his female students. So be careful. And that was pretty public knowledge. You know, like that was something people just talked to. In the same way that Coakley preyed on young, you know, everybody would have warned the freshman boys, like just he's going to invite you over for dinner and just say no, you know. Um, and so, I, you know, I was like, well, I don't want to deal with that. And I had talked to somebody else who had taken uh class with this woman, Anne, and I was like, okay, well, I'll just, I don't want to try and compete to get into a class where I might be preyed upon. So I'm just going to go with this other person. And then, I mean, the, the number of predators teaching at Northwestern at that time was just astounding. And, and, and some of them, I think, you know, I did it less in a less gross way. <laughs> so around the time that the, um, Harvey Weinstein thing came out with the whole, with the basically when the whole Me Too movement really just came surging on. Some genius thought it was a good idea to start a Facebook group called NU Theater 1995 and before. And they thought that this was just going to be all these memories and people were going to post pictures and stuff. And um, I didn't even know about this page. And then somebody invited me to it. Somebody who knows that I did not have a good experience at Northwestern. And I'm like, why would Amanda invite me to this thing? And I'm like, there must be something on there. And then when I tried to join, it asked me all these questions. Like all of a sudden there was like a block that, because apparently journalists had gotten in there before they did that. Wow. So, 
Oh, like you had to answer questions to prove that you really that I had okay. that I'd gone there and who was my acting teacher and all that stuff. And so finally, I realized that I've been on like allowed onto this page, and I go scrolling, and it takes a long time because like the people who created the page just posted photo after photo after photo after this vitriolic thread because they didn't want it to be up near the top, and and yeah, it was smart. And you know, Northwestern people, they're smart. And so I'm scrolling through and I find, I finally find the thing. It's like already got over 700 comments on it. I'm like, oh, this must be it. And it's just this, like, everybody talking about how abused they felt. And honestly, like the people who were sexually preyed upon did not come out and say it. It was more like, oh, well, my roommate had this experience with this teacher or my roommate had that experience with that teacher. But the thing was that then everybody was also talking about all the emotional abuse that they suffered and that culture of let's tear everybody down. And it was so sad because there were so many people on that thread who just turned away from the arts altogether because these teachers really destroyed it for them. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. That is so heartbreaking because, 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 you know, what you hope for and what, what often does happen, I think on the other side is that, you know, that's where people feel safe. So that the idea that this, and listen, we could go on and on about how actually not inclusive theater is and how not not safe its origins are, but you got the last laugh because my God, you've had an amazing career. So when did you start figuring out that you were a great writer? Well, I went into at Northwestern. I'm like, okay, I want to act. I want to write. I want to direct. I want to do all three of those things. And then acting very quickly, it became like, this is not going to happen. It was so funny. I would go back home over the summers and work at this um, dinner theater in Westchester where lots of Broadway actors would work if they weren't doing a show on Broadway. Um, and the show I was working on one summer, the woman starring in it was doing the voice of Belle in, in Beauty and the Beast at the same time she was downtown recording it. And I, I remember coming back to Northwestern after that summer and being like, I could get cast on Broadway easier than I could get ca- cast at Northwestern. And, and knowing that that wasn't even an exaggeration, that I just knew more people who worked on Broadway who like thought I was cool as opposed to like being at Northwestern where I was like, not. And I was, I was like, okay, this is clearly a ridiculous situation, but um, the writing thing I I always knew I wanted to do. Um, And then my freshman year, I was also not allowed to take playwriting my freshman year that like freshmen couldn't get into that class. There was only one playwriting teacher. And then she quit at the end of my freshman year and they didn't replace her my entire sophomore year. There was no playwriting problem. Oh, no. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) And then I found out about this creative writing for the media program, which teaches you to write for television, to write for... um, Yeah, it's like writing for television, writing for film, writing plays. And it's all three of those things. And it's housed in the film department. And I'm like, well, maybe this is what I need. And so I was like, okay, I'm applying to this. And if I don't get into this, I'm leaving the school because it's not worth it to stay here. And then I had like two of my best teachers, you know, um, Julia Cameron, who did the artist's way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, She was my screenwriting teacher. And she had just published the artist's way at that point. And so like, that she was an incredible 
person to be and just really compassionate, really caring. <laughs> she gave us this exercise um, fairly early on in the quarter where we got to kill. She's like, you get to kill anybody you want to. That's your writing assignment is kill whoever you want to. And there were three women in the program who had been in my acting class. We had all dropped on Moss because our acting teacher was so horrible. And all three of us picked her to kill and wrote about it. And so she came back in with our papers and was like, who is this woman? And why is she allowed around people? Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, and that and that would and that and what's also fairly sad is that was your only recourse. Like it didn't. I mean, I don't know if you ever went and spoke to anybody in the administration, but I'm guessing that that wouldn't have occurred to you. You know, because it didn't occur to us that we could advocate for ourselves, or that, or that if we did, if, that anybody uh, would take us seriously or do something about it. Yeah. Well, and it just felt so pervasive in the department, and and there were so much worse things going like with with Bud actually, you know sexually preying on people and they weren't doing anything about that. And everybody knew about that. It's like, well, no one's going to care about Anne being mean to us, yeah. you know? Right. And I, the ironic thing is when I was a freshman before I had her as a teacher, um, she had been rejected getting tenure and people were like, Oh, it's misogyny. It's sexism. She should have gotten it. And so I was actually part of a group who like signed a position petition and argued for her to get tenure. And so I argued for her to get tenure and then I ended up with her as a teacher and she was so awful. <laughs> right. So both what I'm learning and I'm writing about too, is that both things can be true. All things can yes. be true. There's a woman who's being, discriminated against because she's a woman in this and she happens to be really ill and hurting other people it's it's like where do we it's so complicated to tease out so yeah so you okay so then you got into this program so you didn't so i didn't leave northwestern and i kept writing and i took directing classes as well which i really loved um and then i started to i sort of snuck into film classes as, as well um because I was like, well, I'm taking screenwriting and, and, the, and the film department just felt less harmful, you know, and maybe only because I wasn't really in it. I don't know. But I, I just think that like your teachers are not like psychologically breaking you down in film classes mm-hmm. in, in a way that's excusable. You know what I mean? Like, I do feel like that's so much of that that school of acting teaching where they're just like, Oh no, you've got to strip them down to nothing and build them back up. And it's so. What they don't realize is we're already nothing. Right. Yeah. We're 18 years old. Like we're just like clay. Yeah. Yeah. Very few of us are walking around thinking that we're, we're the best. I have a question for both of you guys about um, just as Chicago as the second city and like, Mm -hmm. does Chicago have it or did it have a chip on its shoulder about you know, it's comparison to New York because arguably Chicago is now the premier theater city. Like mm-hmm. New York doesn't compare at all to Chicago. And I'm just wondering about like some of this abusiveness. We haven't talked to too many people who graduated from New York schools. I guess with, yeah. when we talk to people who went to Juilliard, we'll hear about a lot of that abuse. But like, I just wonder what the connection might be between these sort of abusive teachers and this chip on our shoulder about we're the second city. Well, there is definitely, I had one experience with this one teacher, um, Dominic Massimi, who taught all the musical theater 
classes, which was like a big interest of mine because I had started out as a singer. And I was in this class with him and we had a day where we had to do an audition. Like we had to come in, like we were doing an audition. We had to dress like we were dressed for an audition and it was pouring rain that day. So the outfit that I was going to wear, I'm like, I don't want to haul this around in the rain. So I just picked something else. It was nice, but it wasn't as nice. Right. And then I got up and I sang some song. I don't even remember what it was. And then afterwards, you know, then he would just tear everybody down in front of the whole class. And so the first thing he said was, well, I don't know if you think you look good in that. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dominic. Sure. Sure. And I was sure. like, oh, my God, here we go. Here and we then go. he says, well, you know, when you go back to New York and you're singing in some nightclub. And I was like, why does he? why does he know I'm from New York? And then I realized, you know, back when we had those like actual physical Facebooks that had everybody's face and where he was from, I was like, he must have looked yeah. in there and saw I was from New York. He must have seen I was from Westchester and just thought I was one of these really privileged kids because he always championed like Brian Darcy James and, you know, some other people. He loved to take the little Midwestern bumpkins, not that they were really bumpkins, but like take them and then like really like, here, Broadway, here you go, like, have these wonderful people. But like, if you were already from New York, he was like, totally had a chip on his shoulder about it. And the ironic thing was that I grew up in this blue collar Italian neighborhood. And right. he is this blue collar right. Italian guy. And I'm like, if you had any fucking idea, like, and, and so the second I put those together, I just totally wrote him off as a human being. You know, and I think because I was able to do those things and I think instead of being hurt, I was just like, look at how pathetic you are. You know, mm -hmm. I, I was less damaged. I was mad. I was annoyed. I like did vindictive things in that class. Like there was a there was a music major who sang some song that was like she did it so operatic. And I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So for our like final performance, like I came in and I fucking blew it out of the water i did that song and another one and you know and like the star guy in the sh in the class was just like that was amazing and i'm like yeah i know thank you i'm still <laughs> never gonna get cast and play it at this stupid school but you know like so i i don't know i operated out of spite a lot i feel like at a certain point well you know we were talking earlier that you know anxiety all kinds of things can be motivators and i think you know, it is a coping mechanism and it is one that is sometimes you, it can act, spite can activate. And, and, and if you're active, I think you have a chance of getting out and doing something else. So thank gosh for spite yeah. because <laughs> it's like it motivated you to, to, to do stuff as, as opposed yeah, to just it yeah, like It seems like it motivated you to take the bull by the horns. You know, I mean, maybe you already c came into the school feeling like you could advocate for yourself or that you were in the in, in, captain of your own whatever ship but um maybe you know it, it does seem like you turned those lemons into that kind of lemonade and i was wondering if the exercise about where you get to kill the person did how has that thread gone for you in your writing do you have have you continued to do any of if that in your writing um you know i well, I have, I don't have a lot of plays that are super personal to me in that way. I do have um, my play Lucinda's Bed, uh, for sure. I, I 
I quoted a lot of people in that play, like, you know, who did me harm. I'm like, I am totally taking all the receipts and putting them into this play. Um, but no, I mean, I give that exercise to my students sometimes to, you know, because I think there's catharsis to be had in it. I thought it was a really interesting and clearly we all needed it in that moment to like kill off our acting teacher in writing. And it was fun. Um, but yeah, I, you know, part of me, I feel like I was just more able to um, remove myself from the department and not be harmed by it versus I don't know how much I was making lemonade. I was, I was protecting myself and I was fine. I found another program where I could thrive and that was the writing program. And I got what I needed to out of the theater department, but it was like, there were tracks that you had to have, like you had to have like a, a specialty or a focus to graduate. So you had to have enough acting classes or enough design classes or enough directing classes. And you could decide what that was partway through, but writing wasn't one of the options. And part of the reason writing wasn't one of the options is they didn't have a fucking writing teacher there, you know, right. or they finally did my junior year, but it wasn't, nobody could take the right. playwriting classes. So I what, argued, what, I said, look, I'm in this play, you know, this special certificate program. I'm writing every quarter. Like this is going to be my thing. And they're like, okay, we'll let that be your thing. Okay. And what did you get when you say you got what you, you got something out of that? What did you get out of the acting department? Like, what do you think you took with you that is that you use today or, you know, I, I think, I, I think I understand a lot about um, people's vulnerability and that, you know, like, Anne would find out these things that had happened to people and then try and use that in a scene. Oh I mean, and one of the girls in my class, like four of her friends had died in one weekend. One had, had like had too much alcohol, some, you know, drinking competition thing at a college and died. And then a semi fell on a car for like three of her friends. And she was one of the people who ID'd them. Like, that's how traumatizing it was for her, right? And like three weeks later, Anne is bringing it up in class while she's trying to get work. And I'm like, this is not okay, you know? Um, and so I think like just having an understanding of where boundaries should be, you know, by, you know, mostly by terrible example, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But what, you were, you said you almost minored in psychology. Were mm -hmm. you, was that the first time you were really learning about these concepts and sort of applying them to your life? Or had you already sussed a lot out? You mentioned earlier being an oddly mature kid, which, you know, everybody who has a traumatic past will tell you, know, has that <laughs> same exact story. They were, they had to be really good. Um, so when did you start thinking psychologically? Um, well, I took a psychology class in high school. Oddly, that was one of like the three electives that my high school offered. Um, and so I would say I started there and, and it was very much to sort of pull apart the puzzle that was my family and especially my mom's side of the family and just, you know, be like, okay, why, why is everything happening? Cause my parents were both incredibly private and I couldn't for a long time figure out what motivated anything that they did. Um, and so acting was great that way as far as just focusing on motivation. But, you know, when you're writing a play, you are also focusing on your character's motivations. And so, you know, I that, you know, psychology on top of motivation in acting was like really kind of 
those pieces fit together really nicely for me. And I wish I had taken like some more anthropology classes, but I took a bunch of sociology and psychology classes. And I will say, you know, like there was theater history classes that I took that were really good. There, there were things that, uh, you know, I felt like I learned a lot. I liked my design classes, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't worth being part of this culture where everybody was being torn down emotionally. Mm-hmm. You know, that was clearly a, you know, sort of a through line. I th- I feel like there was really only one teacher who, or maybe two who didn't do that, you know, who give, didn't subscribe to that. Give us an example of something that they would do as a technique to tear you down. Um, well, there was like a, a shaming thing that happened um, during during class, you know, like the way the teacher would talk to you in front of the whole class. But the worst example that I heard of was, um, so after that whole thing on Facebook happened, I posted about my acting teacher who was on that page. She had access and could read the stuff. And I'm like, I don't care. I know she can see this and I yeah. don't give a fuck. And so um, I posted about, you know, I'm concerned because she does still teach for the school. She doesn't now, but she was over at NUQ in Qatar, oh, the, the, mid, oh. the Mid-East mid uh, campus. And I actually ended up having students who had her as an acting teacher in the Middle East because they would come and do like six months over in the U.S. And I was like, oh, my God, she's still pulling the same shit. And so I was like, I have concerns about what's going on because she's the only one who still teaches there and I'd like to do something about it. And one of the people reached out to me and said, Oh, I'm on the board actually of the school um, of calm and I can, I'll try and talk to somebody, you know, but then somebody else came up and like, cause I started getting all these DMS from people when I posted that. Cause the other thing I posted was for those of you who are, who are feeling shame about any sort of, you know, sexual encounter or whatnot, a manipulation that you experienced with the teacher. Like, let me tell you, I've taught there for 10 years and I have been pursued by some of my students and you can still say no. Like as a teacher, that's your job to say no. It's your job to draw the line. It is not your job as the student to draw the line. And so for those of you who are holding shame about it, it's totally not your fault. It's completely not your responsibility, which then my DMs opened up and like, people were telling me things. And one of the worst things I heard was that she made a male student strip naked in class in front of everybody so that he could be, you know, bare. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And that person is not teaching there anymore. Is that what you said? No, not, not, yeah, no, I believe she's finally retired. Yikes. Like they made her go to some program. They made her like, you know, go to some sensitivity program where she could behave better. Sure. And sure. I was like, okay. Wow. And then she, you know, wow. was maybe a little better. I don't know. And then retired and got pension I'm on your sure. benefits. Or... I'm sure. Great. Wow. I mean, I, you know, what's interesting is that we've talked to, have we talked to any Northwesterners? I don't no? think no, so. No, maybe we, oh God. I, I had a very different Me perception too. Of Me too. especially during, and look, you know, during the time period, my guess is, is this the 90, are we still talking? 88 to 92. 
Okay, right. So the prime, the prime grossness <laughs> period. Um, I'm sure it was gross and after. Before. But I mean, yes, I, yeah. and I know this period yeah. because that's when we kind of, of went to school. So I did not know it's interesting you never hear like the the famous graduates it's it's interesting of northwestern or depaul well yeah talk say the truth of what went down it's like i feel like people are scared and people are like well now i've made it or i'm successful so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna share the truth Boz, was i with you when 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 somebody told us somebody who knew jillian anderson who went to theater school and she, when she was there the whole time, she spoke in a British accent. I was, yes, yeah. Somebody told us she the whole time she was there, she spoke in a British accent. And late later, it was somebody I forget now. Somebody asked her about it, and she said, um, "Have you heard about what goes on in theater schools?" I was protecting myself. Like her, that was her whole wow. way of. Interesting. Not revealing anything about herself. And she has, to my knowledge, never embraced her status as never. an alum. And many alum of many different schools go out of their way to never mention the school they went to because. Oh, yeah. That's so I actually started. Well, okay. So one of the things you were asking, Gina, was about the New York LA thing. And I think Northwestern, way more than DePaul and Columbia, like kids graduate and they just scatter to the coasts. They very rarely, every once in a while, there's a year where they tend to stay more. And I think it has more to do with there being a recession and nobody being able to get a job. Um, And so, yeah, Northwestern people don't stick around in general. Um, But I also learned very quickly, very quickly, because my first job out of college was working backstage at the Goodman. And it did not take me long to figure out that I should not tell people I went to Northwestern. Oh, really? Because, I mean, Northwestern students were thought of as elitist and snobby and thought they were better than everybody else. And but also everybody knew you didn't have to audition to get in there. So really, were you better than everybody else? And so there was definitely like there was a chip on the shoulder. There was a bunch of things. So I just stopped telling people that I went there. And then when I was teaching at Northwestern, I was like, so I don't tell people that I went to Northwestern and they're like, what? You know, cause they're all like there to get that Northwestern badge. Right. And they're like, why we're paying all this money to say we went to Northwestern. And I'm like, yeah, well, Northwestern grads are often assholes. Like, so, you know, if you want to be able to say you went to Northwestern, I would say, First and foremost, don't be assholes so that you can change that perception. Right. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, and I mean, so many of them aren't. But the other thing about Northwestern, because it there's so many kids of privilege there and acting is a working class job. It is a blue collar job. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, it is shitty hours. It is shitty pay. It is hard on your body. You know, and you could go years and years and years and not get very far, you know, and and these kids come to Northwestern with the stars in their eyes and they walk around for four years like I'm an artist, I'm an artist. And then they get out there and they see what the reality is. And they're like, I am never going to have granite countertops in a nice house in the suburbs like I grew up in if I keep doing this. And so they either like become executives or they go to nursing school, you know. It kind of seems like what we're saying here is that the only reason the school has this prestige is, is because it's expensive. I mean, 
there's probably more to it than that, but yeah, I, I don't know what the prestige is about. Well, they, I mean, yeah, well, I don't know why it would be better than others. I mean, it's crowded. There's too many people. There's not enough opportunity for all the people that they have in the program, which I think is probably still true. You know, you can still only cast so many people in so many plays when you've got 400 people in your program. And, you know. and some, and the, uh, Ed Ryan, whose episode is airing today, told us that Yale is a dump. Like the buildings are mm. terrible. It's like, it's like old, gross. And that he, when he, he didn't go there, but he was there for some reason. And he said to somebody who was auditioning, is this what you thought Yale was going to look like? I mean, Northwestern, let's be clear, has an amazingly prestigious and I think it's earned um, prestige for its academics. And for its mm -hmm. uh, law school and for its mm -hmm. med school. So maybe it's just transfer prestige to the other. Yeah, department. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like acting wise, people who are good, who come out of what Northwestern uh, come out, or at least from my time, I don't want to speak from now, because I just don't have context for now. I taught in the film department, I ignored the theater department for nine years while I was there. And, um, but I, I do think a lot of people like from my time, are were successful despite their time at Northwestern. You right. know, I mean, there were probably some really useful things they learned, but like me, you know, it's not maybe not the thing you wanted to learn in acting class, you know, like sure. protect yourself. Yeah. But so what was your journey? I was going to say, so you graduated yeah. and then what was your, how did you move forward? Like, what did you, how, how did that go for yeah. you? Because clearly you've moved forward. I mean, yeah, with, with a lot of stasis in the midst of all of that. But yeah, I, um, you know, I came out saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to focus on my writing. And I was um, dating my now husband who graduated a year before me at the height of the recession and got a job. So I was like, okay, so I guess we're here in Chicago. And um, I also, I, I really love screenwriting. Like I want, I would love to make lots of films. Um, and it's, but it was so expensive in the, you know, it was, you had to actually film on film. So I had like a, a, a film that I was like, oh, maybe I can make this really low budget. And then it got to the point where I was like, well, I can do this. I could produce this or I could produce my wedding. And I really can't do both. <laughs> and I've been married for 25 years. So I feel like that was a decent investment. Um, and I just was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to focus on playwriting. And Chicago wasn't even an awesome place for new plays right then. But because of Chicago Dramatists, it really sort of became a great place. And, and Rebecca Gilman and things like that. It became a great place for new plays. And um yeah, so I just sort of stuck around and kept my head low, didn't tell people I went to Northwestern, wrote stuff, um, did things through Women's Theater Alliance and the Bailiwick Directors Festival. And then finally, I'm not a joiner, you know, I'm really not a joiner. And I think that Northwestern even made me less of a joiner because of the environment there. And I sort of ignored people's advice to do Chicago Dramatists for a long time. And then I finally went over there and Russ hooked me up with Kevin Heckman at stage left. And that was sort of where everything launched off from. Is you that know. so Chicago Dramatists is it's a writer's lab in addition to being a theater? 
Well, and, and it's not a theater, it's not a producing theater right now. And it wasn't at the beginning. It was sort of a producing theater in the middle for a while um, and and found that it was overstretching itself and giving a lot of resources to one or, you know, to two or three writers a season, as opposed to its entire group of resident playwrights and not serving everybody as well. Um, but yeah, it is a, a place that has been developing new work for a long time, both from through classes and then through their network and then through their residency. So yeah, it's a, it, it has been a fantastic place. I think it's less, there's more, there's so much more new play development opportunity in Chicago now. Like people sort of got caught wind of that and Steppenwolf started doing with their first look and then Goodman was doing new stages and their writer's lab. And, you know, so everybody kind of has stuck their fingers in there and are doing it well or poorly, depending on who you ask or how your process works. But um, I'm yeah. glad you mentioned Steppenwolf because I was going to ask you what it was like. You you worked with Steppenwolf. Can you share your experience? He's good. Yeah, you know it was really good. Honestly, um, I had there had been other playwright friends of mine who had had bad experiences prior to that, and. Um, somebody who used to work there when I was, I was talking to her as I was negotiating my contract or getting ready to. And she's like, the last thing she said to me before she hung up the phone was don't let them screw you. And I was like, "Ah!" Um, and it ended up, I never felt, the only thing I felt screwed by was that I didn't realize until opening night that my first play that was produced there was not running long enough to qualify for the Jeffs. It was like only a, a three or four. It wasn't, it was shy of the required 21 performances. I think it was like four weekends. Or oh, something. not, it's not long enough, but the the run of it. Was the long. run of the show was not long enough. And I was like irate when I realized that mostly because the two performances by Roz Alexander and Guy Van Swearingen in that play were so phenomenal that I was like, these guys really should be recognized for this work. You know, I didn't care as much for myself, but, you know, all these so many people put work into a play and then for nobody to be able to be recognized for it was aggravating. Um, But no. And, you know, I was I found out I was pregnant like just a couple weeks before rehearsal started. And I was I had to tell everybody like I had to tell the stage manager I had to, I, I needed to snack constantly so I wouldn't vomit. Yeah. And so I had to tell everyone like, I'm sorry, I have to have snacks around me during rehearsal process and it's rude. And, but we don't want me to vomit, you know? And so, no, that's, that's a little more traumatic in some ways. For everybody. <laughs> right. You know, so, it, it, but it was good. And, you know, there was this one moment um, where my director, um, during tech, it was his first time directing and tech was overwhelming for him as it would be for any first time director. And I, I had just realized during the run that night, how to fix the scene. I was like, Oh, I, I figured it out. I'm, I know how to fix it. And he's like, I don't have space for this right now, Mia. And I was like, Oh, it's fine. And I just sort of turned around and was like, I'm going to go home and rewrite it. And um, the next day, um, Ed Sobel, who was the new play development person at the time, comes in. He's like, so did Tim yell at you last night? And I'm like, no, he didn't yell at me. You know, but like clearly Ma- Malcolm Ewan, who was the stage manager at the time, who has since passed, um, he, you know, he saw something happen and he 
was like, okay, let's make sure the playwright's okay. And and it was all fine. Like I didn't take anything personally in that process. Tim was just stressed and I was like excited about my discovery and it all was fine. So that was, that was honestly a, a great experience other than the didn't qualify for the Jeffs. We could do a whole podcast episode about the ways in which just the anatomy of being a woman impedes in your job. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I like three stories pop into my mind that all have to do with having my period. One of which I feel, I mean, it can't be proven and maybe I'm being paranoid, but I feel that this experience tipped off a set of events that led to like dissolving a professional relationship literally just being like I bled through my pants and I had to leave something and come back to it and when I came back the look on this guy's face he was giving me what he thought was a was a um, sympathetic smile but I swear to god what I saw in his eyes was see you really can't do it Oh my! I God. I really and and it and it was like that was the step one of a an, and it's it's fascinating to me. Some th- these are very basic things that in some ways as a culture we're still not that equipped to deal to deal with. You know, those of us who don't have yeah. anatomical women parts parts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I have been doing this whole interview with a migraine from my perimenopause. So whoo, oh me. my God, Boz is perimenopause. I am. I have all kinds of stuff. It's, all kinds of stuff. Do you get stuff. migraines too? Oh, oh yeah. I got my, I've been having migraines since I was five years oh, old. Oh my though. God. So I, and they're hormonal. They think they're hormonal even from five oh, years my God. old. So it's crazy. It's just a hard, it's a hard situation. situation. Wait, let's, let's talk really briefly um, about, or, or, you know, moderately briefly, whatever about um, your, what you're doing and, and the web series that you did. Yeah. Um, Haven, Haven. Haven. Yeah. Um, I, so from like 1999 on and off through 2017, I worked at a domestic violence shelter and pretty early on in that time working there, I was like, this needs to be like a one hour drama series. Like this is like, it's an revolving door of interesting characters. And, um, uh, you know, but I was like, but nobody is is doing shows about women and certainly not women of color, which is, you know, pri- primarily, you know, because white women tend to have more money. And so they have more resources and they don't end up in shelters as often, um, not because they're not being abused, but just because they have more resources. Um, and so, you know, it's a, a lot of people coming through that have fascinating stories. And there's a lot of like humor and heartwarming stuff that happens that I don't think anybody realizes. So I made this web series called The Haven kind of like as a proof of concept to be like, this would be a good show, people. And then um, and um, Open Television, which is um, an intersectional group in Chicago, based out of Chicago, um, picked it up for distribution, which was amazing because we're barely um, it, like our content is on their mission. Like Elizabeth Laidlaw and I as white cis straight women are not very mission for them. So it's like, oh, thank you for including us. That's so nice. Um, and then the day they released the show, my mom went into hospice. And so I, um, I had a, I really, I didn't, I was like, okay, well, I'm not marketing this show. I'm doing this. And then I was just kind of getting back into gear 
um, February of 2020 when, and then the pandemic hit and I was like, okay, so it's like, I have this web series out there and you can find it on, on open television and you can find it at thehavenweb.com. But it, you know, and it was a fantastic experience. Like I learned so much. It's almost like I put myself through film school, but I paid other artists instead of paying a school, you know? Oh, what a great way to look at it. I mean, like that is, that is, it's so, maybe that's what needs to happen instead of theater acting conservatories. It's like we learn on the job Mm -hmm. and, and we also can, you paid other artists to thrive instead of an institution. Or instead of abusers, you know? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and hopefully I wasn't abusive in the process. Um, I I don't think I was, but you know, somebody might disagree with me, but it was such a, like that ended up being the thing that made me the happiest was writing people's checks. Like I had no idea that that would be as gratifying as it was to just be like, like a, to just have the money and, you know, thank you to everybody who gave to us, but like to, to pay these artists and to pay them like, uh, you know, a, a SAG wage, you know, it was a low SAG wage, but it was but still, still, you know, and then we paid the crew like the same as we paid the actors. And did so you, it was, did you do a GoFundMe or some type of a campaign? Like um, that? We did, uh, we did Fractured Atlas. So it was, a uh, what do they call that? It, they, they were our 501c3 okay. kind of thing. It's like, uh, it's, um, I can't think of the words right now, mostly because it's of the like migraine. borrow a nonprofit to raise money for your thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so, cool. yeah. Um, and, you know, and it worked nicely and um, people were generous and, you know, we got a little bit of foundation money as well. And it was, it was a really good experience and I learned a ton from it and I would still love for it to be a one hour show. Um, you know, I think people assume that, any show that takes place in a domestic violence center um, or shelter would just be depressing, but it, it's not about the abuse. It's about people starting their lives over. It's about them or, surviving. Yeah. And, or just trying to pull away because a lot of women go back, right. You know, like women leave an average of seven times before they leave for good. And so that process of seeing them struggle and, try and pull away. And of course we know a lot of the women actually see their abusers while they're staying in the shelter. Like they either logistically have to, because their kids have to see them or, you know, they have to go to court or sometimes they just want to see them, Mm -hmm. you know, because they love that person. So it's there, there's a lot of complex stuff going on in there, but you, you know, like their babies are born in shelter and you see kids take their first steps and you see women get their first job after leaving an abuser. And it's just so inspiring in a lot of ways. How long did it take you to film? Oh my God. We did the first, we shot the first episode the week that Trump was elected, Um, which honestly ended up being this amazing gift of just not having, like, I just couldn't think about it. You know, like, I think I couldn't sit there and stew and be like, oh my God, what's going to happen? It's like, okay, you know what? We're just going to take this group of artists and we're going to do some art. And that's how we're going to spend the next five days. And that, so we did that, um, which was actually our second episode, but we shot it as our pilot because it was the cheapest, smallest. And then in April of 2017, we shot the second one. And in May of 2018, we shot the last two. 
So it was over like quite a long period of time but, because we had to, or we had to raise money in between. Right. right. By the end, were you much more efficient than the, with the first episode that you shot? Um, yeah, in some ways, um, you know, I, we had different directors each time. So Elizabeth and I co-directed the first one and then um, we brought other people in for the other two, partially because, well, especially for the last two, we had so many women of color in the show that I, I, di- I didn't feel comfortable telling it so much through a white lens. Like our, our um, director of photography was, is uh, Latina and so it, like there was some of that perspective, but I just wanted more. Um, but, you know, then you have to sort of develop a new language again. And and then we were working um, with Kat Dean, who is um, was disabled at the time and, and has since passed. But she, um, you know, so that took more time. You know, it's just like, OK, you're working with a person who has physical disabilities and that's just going to be more of a, a thing. So in some ways it wasn't, but in some ways it was, you know, it mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. We sort of added new challenges each time. Yeah. And that's the hate. Say the name of the website again where people can find it. It's thehavenweb.com. Thehavenweb.com. Yeah, so All cool. right. Thank you so much, Mia. This has been a great Thank conversation. You, Mia. Hey everyone, it's Gina just jumping on at the end here to say if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and also please leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. If you really love us, please write a review. Having those reviews, whether they're good or not, helps us with our algorithm in the matrix of it all, so it would be greatly appreciated. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or any other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks!